Today's video was recorded on September 27, 2022. Now we're back at it in our series through the book of Exodus. And in today's lesson, we'll be exploring the section of Exodus that scholars refer to as the Book of the Covenant, and that includes Exodus chapters 21 to 23. And in these chapters, we find commandments that are there for creating a society where the presence of God can ultimately dwell with his people. So in today's video, we're going to look how the Torah actually improves on the societal laws that were common in the countries surrounding Israel in the ancient Near East. And so for us, as we're studying these commandments, it's really important to understand how and in what areas the commandments have been improved to serve a more just and equitable society. God is concerned with how we structure our society. God wants justice and justice alone to prevail and that all humanity is viewed as being created in the image of God. So in this video, we'll be looking at some of those commandments, and what we want to do is look deeper into the commandment at the wisdom behind it. How does that commandment lend to a society that is more just, that is more equitable, and that creates a space for God's presence to dwell? Now, folks, we're in October and the holiday season is quickly coming upon us. And I know that many of you use Amazon to do your holiday shopping. Now, one way you can support Fig Tree Ministries is through the Amazon Smile program. And so when you shop using Amazon Smile and you select Fig Tree Ministries as your nonprofit partner, the Amazon Foundation will make a donation to Fig Tree Ministries on your behalf. Now, these funds have already been set aside by the Amazon Foundation. It's pure potential sitting there waiting to be released. But it can only be released when you turn that potential into action. So we've included a link below in the description section that'll take you directly to smile.amazon.com and it'll automatically link you with Fig Tree Ministries as your donation partner. It's that simple. Then you do your shopping. And based on your shopping... Amazon Foundation will make a donation to Fig Tree Ministries. It's really that easy. Now, don't allow that money to stay dormant at the Amazon Foundation. Put it to work for expanding the kingdom of God. Here at Fig Tree Ministries, we appreciate all of our generous donors. The support that they provide helps us to increase this ministry's reach and increase the kingdom of God by helping people understand the world of their Bible and how they can apply it to their lives today. So shopping through Amazon Smile is just another way you can help us to grow the ministry and have an impact for God in the world. So enjoy today's lesson on the Book of the Covenant and how these commands serve our society in creating a space where God's presence can dwell. So we are, let's see, obviously still moving through the book of Exodus, and we'll do a we'll do a slight review, not a huge one, of last week. But this week we're going to be on this portion of Exodus called the Book of the Covenant. So if you have your Bible available, you can turn it to Exodus twenty-one to twenty-four. In that area, we'll read a couple of the commands, 
And I think that if there's one thing that I would like for people to, well, especially because Christians a lot of time don't pay attention to the commandments in the Old Testament. And what I want to suggest is we should seek the wisdom of the commandments in the Old Testament. God put them there for a reason. So even if you don't have to obey it, what's the wisdom behind even making that commandment? So when we get to the end tonight, we'll look at some we'll look at some of the commandments and you you try to go deeper and think about the wisdom. How does that affect society or as an individual, whether or not you ever have to obey it or not? But that's that's really what I think we can find so much wisdom and I think our culture we're lacking wisdom, wisdom and courage. We got lots of information. We're lacking wisdom and courage. So this will be our 22nd in the book of Exodus. And now the, the background, I'm always trying to just find something unique in the background that relates to what we're going to talk about. But this is what you're looking at is a black, I can't remember the name of the the stone, oh, it's black, it's basalt. It's a giant basalt stone. I'll show you in a minute. The writing that you ha see there is cuneiform. So cuneiform comes from Mesopotamia, and this is called the Code of Hammurabi. So it's a law code, just like we find bits of law code in, the, uh, in Exodus. And there's a lot of similarities between the ancient law codes of other countries and the Old Testament. And then what we want to look at is how does God improve on what they would understand as being regular commandments of the, of the region, and God makes them better. He, he makes improvements. So this is Babylonian from the city of Babylon about 1750 BC. And it was discovered in 1901. Let me show you a picture of it right here. So this was discovered in 1901. It's in the Louvre in, in uh, France right now. So if you wanted to travel to Paris, you could see it. And they inscribed the law code onto that stone. And the picture at the top is Hammurabi receiving wisdom from the gods to create the law code. So it's actually a, the creation of the king and to show how, how wise the king was. Of course, when we get our law code in Exodus, it's by God, not a human being. So the thing stands about a little under eight feet, I think. Anyways, so what you see then is the middle of that has writing like this. So if you pull that out, you see that that's cuneiform. They figured out how to read cuneiform, and we have documents galore from all over the, the ancient Near East in Mesopotamia. So that's our background for our discussion tonight, because we want to talk about how do we compare what's written in Exodus to what would be understood in the, in the cultures around it. So the Book of the Covenant, that's going to be our topic tonight, the law code compared to other law codes found in the ancient Near East. And the Code of Hammurabi happens to be the largest and most well-preserved of them. Okay, just to kick off, uh, top of your page of your handout, we're just going to do a quick review, a very quick review, I think, and to 
keep ourselves focused on what is the whole goal of the book of Exodus. And we talked last week that the book begins in slavery, enslaved to the Pharaoh, and then it, the movement of the book is, of course, deliverance from that slavery. But you don't want to stop there. You want to go all the way to the end and read that last two paragraphs of the book where the presence of God comes down off the mountain. At first, it's up on the mountain and everybody's afraid. They don't want to go near. They're afraid of the presence of God. By the end of it, they're dwelling intensely. And of course, that the concept there, biblical concept, is called redemption. And we noted also that that's the story of the Bible. How do we dwell with the presence of God starting right now? So it's that journey. Now, what I didn't say last week, but we will be talking about for the next few weeks, is redemption comes in two stages. So I put two stages on there, and you'll, by the time we're done with it in the next few weeks, you'll see exactly what I mean about two stages of redemption. But there's two stages. And then you get the dwelling of the presence of God, at least the strong, very intense dwelling of the presence of God. Okay, so that's the movement. That's the whole picture of Exodus is redemption. We also noted then that you can read the book of Exodus on multiple levels. So most of us read it on the historical physical. Here's the date that this may have happened. Here's the route they may have traveled. Here's the mountain, we think. So those are all historical, physical. And those are amazing studies to think about how this was unfolding, but it, it doesn't apply to our lives, right? If we, if we read it only on the historical, physical. So what, what do we want to do? We want to elevate it, abstract it, and read it on the spiritual. So you read it as, this is what they say every Passover. The rabbis tell you at the Passover, eat the Passover as if it's happening to you. You're the one being delivered. And so you can go across the, that, this, uh, you know, the, the pictures on the top and say, well, yeah, we're all slaves to something, to sin, to the outside forces of the world. We're all in some way, shape, or form enslaved to something. The totalitarian impulse exists both outside and in nation states. You see totalitarian nation states. Uh, it, it exists, of course, within us, inside uh, our own bodies. We find out that, oh no, I'm the Pharaoh who, is, uh, who won't let myself go. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 7, you know. Hey, I desire to do good, but I got this, you know, my inner being is fighting me. So Paul sees a different law happening inside of him, and it's warring against what he really wants to do. So we could say, yes, we are slaves. We're the Pharaoh. We need a lamb. We have a lamb. And of course, Jesus is that lamb. And the Bible makes it very clear that Jesus died on Passover. That's the holiday he dies on. It's three o'clock in the afternoon that Jesus uh, dies. That's what the Bible tells us. Just as God instructed for that Passover lamb. 
And he then, as Paul says, is our Passover lamb. And obviously a lot more than that. We have a water event, that baptism into new life. We, uh, it's, you're born into a new creation, just like Israel went from slaves on one side to a nation on another. Uh, we talked about the banner, something that's raised up conspicuously that you can then raise your sights as you walk through the wilderness. How many of us feel like we're walking through the wilderness of life and we don't know which direction to go? The definition of, of chaos in the Bible is being lost in the desert with no path. You need a shepherd. That's what we need in our life. So then you have uh, the mountain, that, that, that wonderful uh, metaphor of the ascending nature of our spiritual journey, where our perspective on the world is continually changing as we grow, and that we want to ascend at the base of the mountain is foolishness. That's where the world is stuck, and we want to ascend out of that foolishness into wisdom to see the reality of the world as it is, and it causes us then to change our behavior to conform to the reality. Don't steal. Why? Well, because tomorrow you're going to have a problem of anxiety, fear of getting caught, maybe shame and regret of being exposed if you do get caught. Well, you, you can avoid all that. Just don't steal. Okay, and then finally, the ultimate goal is the dwelling with the Holy Spirit. And we, we noted last week, it's not just individuals. Us as individuals, it's us in community. When you walk into the church service and the the choir singing and you feel the presence of God. You know that you don't get that sensation at Walmart. You get it when there's a group of living stones being built together into a spiritual house, and then the Holy Spirit dwells very intensely uh, in community. And then, you know, when Jesus announces the good news, the kingdom is near. He doesn't only mean, hey, one day you'll get to go to heaven. Hang on. It means starting right now in the present, the Spirit of God is available to all humanity. That's how God created it. And so you can begin to live right now a redeemed life, even though redemption isn't fully complete yet. So that's the book of Exodus. And then into that, into that in the middle of the, in the book of Exodus, God's going to create a relationship. He's going to be the king, and the people are going to say, yes, we will obey you. And he says, okay, well, here are the rules. So just like a marriage covenant has different rules that we follow, husband and wife, the same thing we find at Mount Sinai. So where do they get this phrase? I just want to show you so you can see what's happening. God's going to give these words. That's how chapter 21 begins. Give the, the Israelites these words, and then turn, if you would, to Exodus 24, verse 7. This is where you find the phrase, the book of the covenant. That's why scholars say, well, at this point in Exodus, what was Moses holding? Well, he was holding these, what God just instructed him to say. So the Bible says, uh, Exodus 24, verse 7, he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. So everybody has to hear it. And they all said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. 
and we will be obedient. So some of your Bibles say we will do and we will obey. So that's where we get Book of the Covenant. And what's interesting, and we'll talk about this in a couple weeks, the rabbis noticed something here in that sentence. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will obey. This, the word for obey is the same word as hear, Shema, Shema Israel, hear, O Israel. So you'd think, you think it would say, we will hear and then we will do. You think it would be the other way around. You think, hey, we'll, we'll obey your rules and then we'll do them. We'll act them out. That's not what they say. We will do it. We will obey. And there's, a, there's great teaching in that. Why did it go in that order? And so I think if you, when you understand some of the reasoning behind why it goes in that order, you have a different view of looking at the commandments. So we'll do that in, in a week or two. But that's where you get the Book of the Covenant. All right, this is a little bit of review from last week. And let me see if I have it. Yeah, I have it on your handout, just breaking down the sections of the Book of the Covenant. And so we noted last week, these are not laws of individual holiness. These are societal laws, government governing the society. So any administration or adjudication or punishment is at the level of the judges and the leaders of the community, whatever community it happens to be in. So you have treatment of servants. You have personal injury laws, tort laws. You have property laws. What happens when property is damaged? A whole section on social responsibility, justice, and mercy. And so it's Exodus 21 through in chapter 21, all the way through 23. Then you get to 24. That's where Moses is going to ratify the covenant. He's going to read it aloud to the people. All the people are going to say, We will do and we will obey. Then there's a sacrifice. The ratification of this covenant, Moses sacrifices and sprinkles them with the blood. When Jesus is doing his Passover meal with his disciples, he says, my blood is the blood of the new covenant. It's the same covenant ratification ceremony. So we enter relationship with God through the covenant of Jesus' blood, and then we now are in new relationship, and immediately we have to start acting like it, and building our communities around it. And I think sometimes, again, when we lose sight of this, partly because Western jurisprudence is based on the Bible. We've got thousands of years of our legal system, ideally, treating people as if they're in the image of God. To the extent that you are participating in society, then you participate in the law. So if you happen to find yourself a witness in a court of law, then you need to know your responsibility to the community so that you're the closest thing to the kingdom of, of heaven can be manifested here and you're not the one um, mucking it up. You know, and the other thing is, is even if you're never in that situation, it's the virtue of the individuals in the community that are going to hold the leadership responsible. And that's what we see go awry throughout the Old Testament. The leaders become corrupt. So it's the individuals, they, that, their character and virtuous nature, knowing all the rules, keeps the leaders in check. 
Now, here's what I want to do. This is now this is all new is a great area of study. It's very helpful is it looking at all of the other ancient Near East law codes. Now, on that slide there, A-N-E stands for Ancient Near East. And so when you have the Book of Exodus or Leviticus or Deuteronomy, doesn't matter, what you realize is that there are laws that exist in the ancient Near Eastern society that get pulled into the Bible. So, for instance, every law code up there has a, has a law about a homicidal animal. We saw that last week. If a bull gores and kills a human being, then what? And it's found in all the other law codes, and then I'll show you how God improves it. So he takes something that they all understand. And of course, we have laws about homicidal animals, because you can't have a dog, uh, a violent dog, running loose. We have rules against that. But it's really cool to understand how God makes these improvements, right? So he delivers his laws, sets up his society using the cultural language that they understand, and then makes improvements along the way. And th that's really important when looking at these Old Testament commandments. So, let me show you here on a map. This is the ancient, a map of the ancient Near East. So, I'll do a little orientation here. On the left side of your screen, that blue, that's the Mediterranean Sea. Egypt is south in the northern part of Africa. And then, of course, Jerusalem and where Israel is in that southeastern border, uh, southeastern corner of the Mediterranean Sea. Then you have a giant desert. That's why you get the fertile crescent that goes up north. You have a giant desert, and you're over in the area called Mesopotamia. The land between two rivers. Meso, land, Potamia, river. You get hippo, which is horse, hippopotamus, a river horse. So Mesopotamia, and it's between the Euphrates and the Tigris. And then uh, you get Persia all the way on the right side of your screen. So that's, the, that's when scholars talk about ancient Near East, is this region here. Now I'm going to zoom in just a little bit here. So again, on the, on the left side of your screen, Jerusalem over there against the Mediterranean Sea. And then the first place that I have listed, this is number three on your handout, the first place that I have is the king of Ur. Now, who's from Ur? You are. Who left Ur and headed north to Haran and then eventually made it to Israel? That's Abraham. So Abraham grew up in that southern Mesopotamia. It was a kingdom back then. And so you have this king around 2100 BC who has a law code, southern Iraq today. But they have a law code. So that's one law code you can go study. Uh, if we go to the north, I'll just move north, there's Babylon. This Again, now this is in middle Iraq. This is the Code of Hammurabi. That's the one we, we looked at. And that's from about 1800 
1700. I think they date it 1750. And then in northern Iraq, you have what are called the Middle Assyrian Laws, M-A-L. If you Google any of those, you'll find a Wikipedia page on them. You can read all the laws. So there's, I think, I'll show you a reference in a minute. I think there's six that they found, and these are just a couple of them. And you can see the one at the top, Middle Assyrian Laws, that's the closest to Exodus time frame. Okay, so uh, let me show you a picture here. There's the, the Hammurabi Code, and that one is from Babylon. Now, what happened was, he was the king of Babylon. Babylon got taken over by Persia. Persia stole that giant piece of rock, and they moved it to Susa. So the kingdom of Persia was out of Susa. That's where they actually found the stone, was in the, the ruins at, at uh, Susa. Okay, so you can see, it's not like the world didn't have a law code, but then God's going to improve on what was there. Okay, to make it more just and, and uh, equitable and a place for human beings and his spirit to thrive. So, if you turn over the back of your sheet, number four, and this is really what you want to do. I'll give you a couple um, references that are very helpful. Because to us, you know, we read some of these laws and we think, how is that an, an improvement on anything, right? Well, that's because we're 3,000 years later. We've improved ourselves on some of these, but it's important to know that the, the Torah could be even radical in its day because of the improvement. So, the main one, all of the other law codes are from a king, which means they could be changed. But the Torah is, or I'm sorry, our Bible comes from God, which gives it an eternal sense to it, right? And who has to then follow all the, the rules? If, if all human beings are children of God, then who's responsible to following it? Everybody, even the king. Where in the ancient Near East and in, in uh, Egypt, the king didn't have to follow the rules. He was the lawgiver himself. So big shift there. So one, it's an eternal nature. The second one is there's a shift towards the sacredness of life. Every human being is made in the image of God. So there's a, there's a sacredness of life. Okay, so let me go through a couple of these. And these are all on your handout. So the first one is no vigilante justice. Um, God does not want you or any individual out trying to balance the cosmic scales of justice. You're not going to do it right. So there's no vigilante justice. You don't go to do it. In one of the, I think it was the Hammurabi Code, if there was a personal injury, it was considered to be between the two families or two individuals. And the retribution then became very literal. Right? So if someone takes your eye, you take the eye of someone in that family. And what was happening is it descends into chaos, right? It's like the Hatfields and McCoys, as families, are going back years and years and years, battling each other over these old grudges. And 
still happening today in places in the Middle East. And God says, no, that's not what I want to happen. I want the community and I want the judges to administer it. So big shift there that you take all of the vigilante stuff out of the equation. Another one, this is the next one down, there's a limitation on punishment. So you're trying to look for the exact equivalence for the injury, that the punishment fits the crime. Now, in a human system, it's never perfect. God's justice is always perfect. He knows exactly the punishment to fit the crime. We always get it wrong. We can either be too lenient or we can be too harsh. And so we have to develop the character, our character, and the character of our communities to remain in balance, that we don't go overboard one way or the other. But the Torah places limitations on power, so you don't get the death penalty for something that doesn't require the death penalty. Uh, no vicarious punishments. Here's a fun one. If a, if a person was a high enough social status, and they ended up killing somebody, they could turn their daughter over, and the daughter would receive the punishment. So the punishment was delivered vicariously. God says, no, everybody is responsible for their own behavior. Everybody pays the punishment for the crime that they have. So you don't get vicarious punishment. You don't desecrate the human body. This is a big change. Think about the, there are places in, this, in the world today where if you steal, if there's theft, what do they do to you? They cut off your hand. Now, we don't even have to deal with this idea, but boy, to, to go to some countries even today and say, you know what, this new this God will demand that we don't cut off your hand. There'd be lots of people who might be happy about that. So you don't desecrate the human body. Humanity is made in the image of God. And then, uh, then, of course, the big one, equal justice for all, right? Even the king is not above the law, ideally, even though we know that, you know, in humanity, people get away with things because they're in charge or they're at the top, but it's not supposed to be that way. And ultimately, every king does have a judge. It's God. So even if it looks like they're getting away with it on the human level, well, they're not because divine retribution still exists. Okay, so all of these, really cool, how the, how the Torah is improving um, all of these commands. And this is one area of study that I think really helps you understand some of these, they're, they're a little bit strange commandments. Um, let me give you two resources, and uh, one of them I think I have footnoted. Yeah, I have a footnote on this one. So the the Jewish Publication Society has a, a commentary series on the Torah. So it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This one, the JPS, that's the Jewish Publication Society, Torah Commentary on Exodus, Nahum Sarna. It's an excellent commentary. Now it's technical. Half of it's in Hebrew and half's in English, and then the commentary is in English, but it's technical. He's looking at a lot of technical stuff. But it's a great commentary. The next one, which I think many of you may even have, but you at least know who Dennis Prager is. So Dennis Prager uh, is a radio talk show host. 
He's also teaches everything. He's Jewish, teaches about the Bible. This is a great series that he has called The Rational Bible. And he, he does that intentionally because he's like, look, the Bible is rational. It's not an irrational document as much as people like to talk about it as being irrational. So this one on Exodus, the, he will really help you see how, the, how to pull the wisdom out of the commandments. Very helpful. Great series of books that he has. That one is definitely an easier read than Nahum Sarna, and Dennis Prager quotes Sarna a lot. So those are two references um, that may be able to help you with some of the commandments. Okay, so let's, the last thing I want to do, and I guess may have put the wrong, should be number six there, is I want to look at a couple of the commandments. We're going to look at three commandments. We'll, we'll talk about some changes, how they differentiate themselves in the improvement that God's making. And then one of them, the last one we'll do, is just a, I mean, it's just a brilliant little commandment about how to connect humanity. But we're always looking for what's the wisdom behind it. So let's start in Exodus 21. And I'm just going to pull, I just kind of randomly chose, well, they're not really, I didn't randomly choose them. I take that back. Because I think these we can relate to. So I chose the homicidal animal. We have, if you just Google dog attacks in America, you'll get a whole list. There are pages out there that keep lists of dog attacks. And you can see what happened, what happened to the victim, what happened to the dog, what kind of dog it was, who took care of it. And it's, of course, usually animal control. But all of this is going to relate because we're still dealing uh, with this idea of animals and our responsibility with animals. So we looked at this last week about a bull goring uh, a human being. So this one starts out, verse 28. If a bull gores a man or a woman to death, the bull shall surely be stoned. Now, I mentioned last week, the stoning is done at the community level. So this is such an offense to the community that the community has to come in and participate in it. So the community does the stoning. And the flesh shall not be eaten, because a stoning does not, does not uh, get the blood out of, out of the meat. So even us Gentiles, according to Acts 15, don't eat meat with blood in it. You wouldn't be able to eat an animal that had been stoned. You want, it, you want the slaughtering to get as much blood to come out. Okay. Flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the bull shall not be, head, uh, be held uh, account, uh, responsible. Well, that's, that's important, right? I mean, if an animal goes astray, you can't know the owner's heart at the, that moment. The animal's going off and doing it. So you don't hold the owner responsible for the first time around. Now look at the very next verse, though. The very next verse starts like this. But if the bull had a habit of goring in the past, if you have a dog that has attacked somebody, then your responsibility goes up for that dog. So if the bull had a, had a habit of goring in the past, 
and it has been testified to the owner, meaning the owner has knows about it. The owner did not keep it in. But then the bull killed a man or a woman. You still stone the bull, but now the owner shall be put to death. It's almost like you have a loaded weapon once you have an animal that is attacked. And so you can see the owner's responsibility goes way up. Now, does that seem that the owner should be put to death? Does it seem excessive? Well, I think so. And I think God agrees that even there's a loss of a life. So there has to be an equal measure on the other side, loss of a life. The problem is it might not have been the intention of the owner, right? So look at the very next sentence after this. God says this, if you have a ransom, if you lay a ransom on, ransom on, the human, on this guy, a ransom, then he can redeem himself. He shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is laid on him. This is the only time in the Torah where a capital punishment, a death penalty, can be redeemed. That's an improvement. Why? Because God really is concerned about your intention. The owner of the bull should be more responsible, but he may ha not have intended to murder somebody, and that's the highest level of, of murder. It's all these little nuances to these commandments. Then it says this, whether it has gored a son or a gored a daughter, according to this judgment, it shall be done to him. Now, why? Why did they have to stick this commandment in there? If it gored a son or it gored a daughter? Well, it goes back to those other ancient Near East codes. If you're the owner of a bull and you have a son and that bull kills somebody else's son, then what the law said was, we kill your son. So it's son for son, eye for eye. They took it literally. And God says, no, no, no. Even if it's gored somebody's son, you don't shift that penalty to your son or your daughter. And the fact that it even mentions son and daughter mean they both have a value. You do not punish them for something they didn't do if the owner of the bull was negligent. So it's little things like this. I just wanted to, I mean, the only way to, to do this is you read the commandments and they have to read somebody's commentary on it, but it helps you see that there's way more going on in here, that God is very concerned about human beings, about the community, and then how do we, you know, how does this flow out? Because, you know, life is going to happen and you do get accidents. But you don't overpunish somebody if their heart was not intentional in murder. Okay, that's just one example. Let me, uh, I'm going to switch to another one because this one, without a doubt, applies to us today. And it's uh, about bearing proper witness and then beware of the crowd. Okay, so turn to Exodus 23 1 to 3. And this one is going on today as we speak. So Exodus 23, 1 to 3, how to be a proper witness, how not to pervert justice. So you shall not spread false report. That one is repeated multiple times in, in, uh, in the Old Testament. 
So that one alone, you could just say, don't spread false reports. But then it puts it right next to this one. Don't join your hand with the wicked to be an unjust witness. So it seems they're connected, right? Don't spread a false report in court and help a, a guilty person. Or don't spread a false report and make it seem that someone who's innocent is guilty. God doesn't want that. This is your responsibility should you find yourself in court. Now, the next part is even better because here's where we, we get in trouble these days. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil. God does not hold the crowd in high esteem. Individuals, yes, but when individuals get into a crowd, they can lose themselves. It's the it's mob mentality. And so he's very concerned that you're not following the crowd and doing evil by following the crowd. You need to stand and look at the situation as an independent person. Now, every teenager deals with peer pressure. Adults deal with peer pressure. There's pressure to follow social media. And all of us, because the moment you repeat something, not knowing if it's true, you can't take it back. And it takes tremendous courage if the whole, your whole group of friends or whatever is saying that somebody's guilty, but you don't know if they are or not. And you have to say, I don't have enough information, but they want you to go along with them. So that crowd, but God's very concerned about this. Neither shall you testify in court to side with the multitude, again, to pervert justice. So God sees this as the crowd is probably wrong. Let's put it that way. Proud, the crowd's probably wrong. And so you have to be the independent person, has the courage to stand up and uh, go against that crowd. And then he adds this little piece, neither shall you favor a poor man in his cause. Now, we tend to think that God favors the poor. He does. He looks out for the poor. But in a court case, justice is justice. And so what we don't want to do is pervert justice simply because the person's poor that you're siding with them for that and, and giving them a benefit. God doesn't want that to happen. And of course, you know, we see this in our world today as media and social media is declaring people guilty or innocent when they haven't even been to trial yet. And you don't want to participate in that because you become now a witness and you're bearing false witness. Now, I didn't put these on your sheet and I apologize, but I wanted to put this up for the video. I thought about it late. It's about movies out there. Let me, I'll show you this one. This one is called, was called Dream Killer. This is a movie. You can find it on, I think, Netflix. And it's about a, the, the guy was 20 years old and he was falsely accused and falsely convicted of murder. He spent 10 years on death row and his father fought and fought and fought. And he was finally released. He was, he was declared innocent. Now, I'm going to show you about five movies. And they're all really good because if you can read Exodus and understand the laws and understand what God wants in, a, in the system of justice, and you watch these movies, 
you'll see how everything's just breaking down. Judges are not judging correctly. Witnesses are not witnessing correctly. False accusations. Okay, so Dream Killer, that's one. This was a movie about a, I believe, Harvard train, maybe not Harvard, but I think Harvard Law went down into the South and were helping people that had been falsely accused on death row. True story. Great movie. But again, you can see the breakdown of how God wants society to function, and it breaks down and doesn't. Um, another movie, this is also on Netflix. It's called Making, Making a Murderer. It's a long one. That one has multiple episodes. He's still in jail. They're still appealing it. But I'll tell you, you watch that, and I'm not, an, and I don't want anybody to think I'm declaring innocence or guilt in any way. I'm just saying, watch the process. You see the process break down. Uh, this one, the murder of Lacey Peterson. Now, the guy, uh, Scott Peterson, he's from San Diego. And this documentary came out. And one of the things about the, the Scott Peterson trial was how much influence the media had telling you he was guilty ahead of time. And you watch the documentary on that, and you just see this breakdown of witnesses. They're, they're, they're making a false claim. Or they don't know if it's a true claim. They're just saying things because the media needs to say things. So it's an excellent an example of how it influences the crowd. Don't follow the crowd is what God doesn't want. Okay, so those are really good. And then my favorite one, I put this on a separate slide. This movie is called Long Shot. It's a great movie. It's, I think it's on Netflix again. Long Shot is about a guy who is falsely accused of murder. He was falsely convicted by the Los Angeles district attorney who, oh, by the way, her nickname was The Assassin. So when you get an overzealous district attorney trying to convict people, and the way that they discovered that he was innocent, they finally proved it, was because he was at a Los Angeles Dodgers game, and they were filming a Hollywood show, and he happened to be on film. And that got him out of, got him off, you know, out of jail. It's a, it's a great movie. Um, but again, my whole point is we can watch these movies and read our Bible and watch the breakdown of society and justice that's happening. And it's a great exercise to do by reading Exodus 23 at the same time you're watching this and being like, failure, 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 failure. And now you realize the, the distortions in our society that, that injustice creates. So there's are just some thoughts about how to apply these commandments rather than just read over them. Okay, last one. Um, we'll finish up on this one. And I think this is one of my favorite commandments in Exodus, is God wants us to be able to see the humanity even in our enemy. And of course, Jesus agrees with this. So there's a great commandment. It's Exodus 23, 4 and 5. So it's the very next one down after the, the don't follow the crowd and be a proper witness. And it's really... you. You watch the language here. So here's what God says. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of him who hates you fallen down under his burden, don't leave him. You shall surely help him. Now, what's God up to here? It's your enemy's ox. 
And what's, what's the commandment for you to do? Go get it. Right? And I love the next one. It's the person who you know hates you. You know the person doesn't like you, but you see their donkey has fallen under a burden. What's the command? Go help them up. And I think what God is up to is he wa he's wants to create this moment in time where two enemies can come together in a practical um, effort to help this animal who's under burden. Right? When we make the enemy the other, our anxiety goes up, our fear goes up, our, our, all of our defenses go up. We can, we can diminish them as a human being. God says, I don't want you to do that. Your enemy is a human being too. Right? Engage them on a very practical level. Even if it's for the briefest of moments, you've now joined together in a common task. You're no longer enemies. And now perhaps you can see the humanity that is in that, human, in that person rather than seeing them as the enemy. And it's just a brilliant little commandment. And it's exactly what Jesus says, right? Love your enemy. Do, those, do good to those who hate you. It's like he's quoting this verse, but he's saying it in different language. Bless those who abuse you. It's so hard to do. Maybe it's the person at church that you just really are bothered by, but you're gracious to, or the, the one who outcompetes you with whatever, you know, the the meal after church. I don't know. But it's, a, it's, it's not just enemy in a uniform. It's whoever we, wherever we find someone who maybe we're diminishing in, in our eyes, their humanity. God doesn't want us to do that. So, okay. Hopefully that just at least helps. We get, I mean, we don't have time to go over all of these. Get Dennis Prager's book. It's a great, a very easy read. Um, and he goes and explains a lot of this. It's very helpful. So big improvements here, though. No vigilante justice. Limits on punishment. You're punished only for the crime. No vicarious punishment. Can you imagine having to pay the penalty for your father? Or, or the fact that the bull killed someone's son and now I'm paying the penalty for it. Don't desecrate the human body. And, of course, equal justice under the law is the way that is, well, that's the ideal. Now, we're not there all the time, are we? But that's what we need to be striving towards, even in our, in our Christian communities, and making sure that our leaders are, as, as best we can, without becoming too zealous, making sure that our leaders are uh, maintaining the law. So.